Well done, bro. Good job, man. Thank you, dude. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you all and looking forward to continuing to worship the Lord as we open the scriptures together. Gospel of Mark, chapter 5 is where we are. If you have a Bible and want to follow along, I want to express my excitement as well for Jeff to come on staff. Really looking forward to experience his leadership and his presence uh, with our children, with our volunteers, and really encouraged uh, about the job that Lauren has done filling these new roles. She has uh, worked tirelessly from uh, the very start. August 1 is when she stepped into the executive director role, and she's hired a life groups director. She's hired a kid ministry director. I'm probably forgetting somebody. Uh, there's one more to announce very soon, so um, really uh, grateful for what God is doing amongst our staff, our leadership here, and thank you guys for your prayers and encouragement along the way. Um, <clears throat> also want to express my condolences to any uh, people associated with the Michigan State football team. That was so bad. Embarrassing. But maybe they deserved it in light of everything that's gone on, you know? Um, I don't know. <laughs> oh, good for you, M fans. That was a lot of fun. They looked happy. All right, Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. We've been working our way through chapter 3, 4, 5. We're finishing up uh, this sermon series today. Next week, we're going to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. Um, spend several weeks leading up to Christmas, uh, a sermon series on conflict resolution. Jesus teaches a lot in Matthew 18 about conflict amongst disciples and how to do that in a God-honoring way. Uh, but we're going to finish up this morning, Mark chapters 3 through 5. We titled this series, Thy Kingdom Come, because we're seeing God's kingdom uh, communicated, put on display through the words and the deeds of Jesus. Uh, Mark chapter 4 was primarily Jesus' words, him explaining the kingdom of God. And then at the end of chapter 4, uh, through chapter 5, he's not explaining the kingdom, but he's showing the kingdom. In word and in deed, we see the kingdom of God manifest in the life and ministry of Jesus. So i got a sermon series overview kind of leading up to where we are today. Um, again, you remember he taught about the kingdom. He explained the kingdom in most of chapter 4. And then he started to display the kingdom through his actions. The end of chapter 4 he shows his authority over the storm. He speaks it uh, into ceasing. He speaks peace over the storm, and it stills that deadly storm. And then last week, we're in the first half of chapter 5. He speaks a word, and this demon is cast out from the garrison demoniac. And today, we will likewise see his authority on display over even sickness and death. So let's read these words together, and then we'll dive in. Mark chapter 5 verses 21 through 43. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing Jesus, Jairus fell at his feet and implored Jesus earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with Jairus. And a great crowd followed Jesus and thronged about him. 
And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, a woman who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. The woman had heard the reports about Jesus and she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, he immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And Jesus looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping." And they laughed at him. But Jesus put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, the three disciples, and went in where the child was. Taking the girl by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And Jesus strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The sanitization of death. That's the name of a 2017 article by a scholar at Baylor University named Sarah Lynn McKinnon, The Sanitization of Death. And in the article, she shares how our experiences of death, our encounters with death, have shifted drastically over the last 150 years. So it used to be that very often people would die at home in their bed, indeed, The little dying girl in the story this morning is at her home in her bed. And so family members were very often near the sick and dying. Family members were very often there when the death actually occurred. McKinnon writes, quote, Before the turn of the 20th century, people living in North America and Britain commonly confronted death in their own homes. The dead and dying were familiar commonplace, and domestic realities. But now things have changed, right? A large percentage of deaths occur in palliative care units in hospitals or at inpatient hospice clinics or in skilled nursing facilities, nursing homes. And this has removed for us 
the forced opportunity to stare down the painful reality of death. McKinnon continues, Rapidly changing advances in science and medicine over the course of the 20th century have drastically altered our experiences and perception of death. Death has become sanitized and discreet from our everyday lives. Now, on the one hand, of course, we must be grateful for medical advancements and scientific discoveries over the last century. There's been medicines created and therapies developed that have saved countless lives, and we can thank the Lord for that. At the same time, having sanitized ourselves from death, having so removed it from our lives, my concern is that we've lost the opportunity to be gripped and sobered by the painful reality of death. It is one thing to see it in a movie. It is another thing to be in the room with granddad. Well, though we may sanitize death from our everyday experience, if we read the Bible, we will be confronted repeatedly with the awfulness of death. So the first thing we learn about death in the opening chapters of Scripture, it's that death is contrary to God's design. God's world was created good, and the first humans were meant to feed on what's called the tree of life, and so they would flourish forever. And death only enters later as a consequence for our sin. So death then is an aberration from God's original design. Death is not normal. It's become normal because we live in a fallen world, but it was never part of God's original design for life. And this is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul refers to death as our, quote, enemy. Death is not our friend. Death is not a neutral experience, just a part of life. No, it's our enemy. It's an abnormal experience. It's the destruction of life as God intended. So though we may sanitize ourselves from death, by referring to it as passing away, by putting makeup on dead bodies, by avoiding the places where our loved ones lay dying. If we read the Bible, we will be confronted repeatedly with the painful reality of death. And then comes this man. About 2,000 years ago, he shows up on the scene preaching. And here's a concise summary of his message. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus of Nazareth announces that with his arrival, the kingdom of God has come amongst man. With the dawning of his ministry, the kingdom of heaven has come to earth. And through his actions, some of which we read about today, through his actions, we see the curse of sin rolled back. That violent, deadly storm in chapter 4, it is silenced. Those dark spiritual powers earlier in chapter 5, they are cast out. And today we see painful sicknesses cured. Today we see a tragic death 
reversed. As the kingdom of God reaches humanity, as heaven comes to earth, disease and death, these inescapable and painful realities that we often try to hide from, we find out they are no match for King Jesus. He has the power to cure every disease, even death. So as we work our way through these verses this morning, we're asking, what results from Jesus' healing ministry? What results from Jesus' healing ministry when his healing power touches another, when his restorative word is spoken? What results? First, we're going to see that dignity is restored. Dignity is restored. So the first character that we're introduced to here is a man named Jairus. And we're told that he is one of the rulers of the local synagogue. So he would have been, would have been a man of some prominence, would have been a man of status and respect within community. Well, Jairus approaches Jesus desperate for help because his young daughter is at his house, quote, at the point of death. And even though there is this great crowd fawning over Jesus, even though there's scores of people giving Jesus their attention, in his compassion, Jesus is able to identify the one. He's not distracted by all the pageantry and the way he's being admired. No, he mercifully identifies this man's desperation. And verse 24 says that he went with Jairus. Jesus goes with Jairus to his house to see his sick little girl. Now, the next key character we're introduced to is in many ways the opposite of Jairus on the societal scale. Jairus was well-to-do, well-known, well-respected as a synagogue ruler. This next person is really none of those things. She is a woman who is unnamed, and she has a disease or disorder that shows itself by a constant, quote, discharge of blood. In other words, it's almost as if she's always menstruating, if you know what I mean. And this has been going on for 12 years. And she spent all her money on doctors trying to get better, but things have only gotten worse. This disease very likely made her unable to have children. She was also very unlikely to have been married. This disease certainly means that she was ceremonially unclean. So the Torah, the Mosaic law, specifically Leviticus chapter 15, it outlines that a woman with a discharge of blood like this is ritually or ceremonially unclean for entrance into the tabernacle. And so this woman lived in a perpetual state of uncleanness because of her condition. So think of the indignity, especially in comparison to Jairus. This woman was impoverished because she spent all her money on doctors She's religiously unclean because of the nature of her disease. She's very likely unmarried and without children, which in her culture at that time was a difficult, if not shameful, spot to be in. And in line with her undignified condition, the woman does not approach Jesus face to face. She sneaks up on him from behind, and even when she does touch him, she only touches his clothes so as to perhaps go undetected. So she's showing she doesn't think she's worthy. 
she believes, yeah, Jesus has the power to heal me, but he won't make time for me. Jesus has the power to heal me, but he doesn't want to deal with me or talk with me. So I'll just creep up on him from behind, touch his clothes, and then slip away. And in one sense, the woman was right. As soon as she touches Jesus, Mark says that immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. So the woman was right. Jesus did have the power to remove this disease and renew her health, but the woman was also wrong. Jesus did have the power to remove the disease and he has time for her. He not only wants to heal her, he wants to know her. He wants a relationship with her. And so he says, who touched my garments? And the disciples are like, "Uh, Jesus, we're in a crowd of people, a lot of people pressing in on you. But Jesus is still looking around for her. And then verse 33, the woman comes forward. Mark says that she's afraid. She's shaking. She falls before Jesus and says, it was me. So you see, even though Jesus healed her, even though Jesus was willing to heal her, the woman is still trepidatious in his presence. She's still uncertain in his presence. So it seems like she's still living in her indignity and unworthiness, even though she's healed. And then Jesus speaks some of the most beautiful words of affirmation in the entire New Testament. He looks at this broken woman and says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed from your disease. This is the only time in the Gospels, this is the only time in the entire New Testament that Jesus calls someone a daughter. So Jesus removes this painful disease from the woman, but he also removes her deep shame. And in place of her unworthiness, in place of her shame, he plants this truth in her heart. You are my daughter. The law may say you're unclean. The doctors may say you're hopeless. Society may say you're a parasite. Potential suitors may say you're unmarriable. But to hell with all of that because it is all lies. The truth is, you, by faith, are my daughter. You see, the disease had not only dominated this woman's body, the disease began to dominate her identity, and Jesus wants to deal with both. He heals her body with his power. He heals her identity with his truth. What have you come to believe about yourself? What have you come to believe about yourself? What difficult circumstances have you experienced that Satan used to sow lies into your heart about who you are? For this woman... It was this disease and the way society treated her. You are unworthy. You are hopeless. You are untouchable. Those are the lies this woman received from this difficult experience she walked through. 
Let me give you a small example from my own life, and this is nowhere as drastic as this woman's disease, but Satan used this challenge in my life to really mess with my identity. So growing up, very young child, my first favorite sport was baseball. I practiced hard. I cared a ton. I played every year. My dream was to make the Little League All-Star team. At the end of the season, the coaches would choose the best players from the entire league who got to play in the summer tournament against the other All-Star teams across the state, and I never made it. Nine years old, 10 years old, 11 years old, 12 years old. No, 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 no. And every time I was devastated, I was wrecked. And Satan used those experiences. He used that difficulty to plant the lie in my heart that I am a failure. It's not just that I failed in this one instance. I am a failure. And that lie dominated my life for a long time, and in many ways, I still struggle with it, if I'm honest. What about you? What have you come to believe about yourself? Like this woman, what difficult circumstances have you experienced that Satan used to sow lies into your heart about who you are? I am fill in the blank. I am unworthy, I am hopeless, I am untouchable, I am unlovable, I am trash, I am a failure. Well, whatever disqualifying thing you may believe about yourself, let this woman's testimony, let the words of Jesus sink even deeper into your heart than those lies. Daughter, son. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Those affirming words of Jesus can replace the lies of the evil one. These words endorse the woman's true self. She's not untouchable. She's not a worthless one. She's not an outcast. She is a daughter of the Most High King. She is a beloved woman. And notice the role of faith here. It was not the woman's physical health that made her worthy. It was not the woman's marital status that made her worthy. It wasn't her financial wealth that set her apart in Jesus' eyes. No, it was her faith. Mark says in verse 27 that the woman had heard reports about Jesus. She heard testimonies of Jesus' power, and she believed what she heard. She believed to the point of then acting on her belief. She goes after Jesus. She reaches out for Jesus. And so, friend, if you want a new identity, if you want to be rid of your indignity, making enough money will never get it done. Finding the perfect partner will never get it done. Becoming as physically fit as you want to be will never get it done. The only thing that sets us apart in Jesus' eyes and enables us 
to receive a new identity from Him is faith. Trust in Jesus. Trust in the good news that He brings heaven to earth. He brings God's kingdom amongst men. You believe that message and your faith will make you well. Maybe not physically, immediately, but spiritually, internally, you'll start to be healed. And you'll receive a peace that no sickness can take away. What is the result of Jesus' healing ministry? First, through this bleeding woman, we see that his healing ministry restores our dignity. And secondly, through this dead girl, we're going to see that life is resurrected. Life is resurrected. Now, as Jesus is wrapping up his conversation with a woman, news arrives that it's too late. Jairus' daughter has died. Someone even says, why trouble the teacher anymore? He's got a crowd of people to attend to. Other people could be helped. Leave him alone, Jairus. Jesus says, no, no, no. This girl can still be helped. And so verse 36, he tells Jairus, do not fear, only believe. Now, if you're Jairus, you may be frustrated at this point, right? Like Jesus, if you had not stopped to deal with this other woman, then... And it's not like this woman is dying from this flow of blood. You could have gone and healed my daughter and then come back to this woman, but now you've delayed yourself, and my daughter's dead. But Jesus allows himself to be delayed so that he can show compassion to the woman, and so that he can do an even greater miracle in the girl's life. He's not only going to heal her, he is going to raise her. And friends, it seems like this is not too untypical of God. Could God right now immediately zap all your problems away? get you the raise you need, heal the sickness you have, restore the relationships you're in? Could he zap all those things right away into order for you? Sure he could. He spoke the stars into existence. He can turn your boss's heart to give you a raise. But oftentimes, like Jairus, on the journey of faith, things are drawn out sometimes. Jesus could have right away gone to Jairus' house and healed his daughter, but no. He allows the girl to die. And even then, he still urges Jairus, do not fear, only believe. And so I ask, what are you waiting on from God? Maybe it's a financial situation. Maybe like in this story, it's a health situation. Maybe like I mentioned, it's broken relationships. Maybe it's any number of things. What are you waiting and waiting on God for? Like Jairus, what is it in your life where you're like, come on, Jesus, I needed you to show up like yesterday. We'll know that you are not alone in having to wait on God like this. And oftentimes, God is more interested in growing our faith than solving our problems. And so Jesus says to Jairus, Jesus says to us, do not fear, only believe. And Jairus does it. He continues with Jesus towards his house, and already there's a commotion of people weeping and wailing loudly. 
Jesus says, why are you weeping? The child's only sleeping. So Jesus refers to the girl as asleep because he knows, like a sleeping person, this little girl's about to wake up. Dead people stay dead, but when Jesus is around, dead people are only sleeping people. So Jesus says, why weep when she only sleeps? And when he says this, they laugh at him. So you got to wonder what Jairus is thinking now. I'm following Jesus still, trusting his power. But other people are laughing at Jesus and by association laughing at me. But best we can tell, Jairus has resolve to his faith. He keeps following Jesus into the room with his dead little girl. And then Jesus grabs her by the hand and he simply says, Talitha kumi. That's Aramaic for little girl, rise. And what do you know? She wakes up, walks around, gets something to eat. Life is resurrected through the healing power of King Jesus. And this scene here is a microcosm for the life of faith for so many of us. This scene is a microcosm of the life of faith for so many of us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, we walk by faith, not by sight, meaning we don't always have the answers for how life is going to play out. We don't always know how God is going to work out the things that need to be worked out. We don't always have sight of those things. Similarly, in Hebrews chapter 11, the author defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So even though we believe in God, we're still just human. We're limited in our capacity to know exactly how the story will play out. But through the gospel, we do know how the story ends. Life is resurrected. Do we have every single answer for how your finances will get in order? Do we have clear sight of where your health goes from here? Do we know the exact details of how your relationships will turn out? No. All the in-between chapters of your life, we don't know what the story holds necessarily, but we do know what the final chapter holds. Life is resurrected. Victory is experienced. We don't always know how God is going to work out the things that need to be worked out, but because of the gospel, we trust that they will get worked out. So as you're walking through whatever trial... As you're waiting on the Lord to show up, hear his voice calling you forward in the journey of faith. Do not fear, only believe. And like in Jairus' story, trust that your story too will end with Jesus' resurrection power bringing life back to your dead body. Trust that every sad thing will ultimately come untrue. Every evil will be judged. Every disease will be cured. In the end, Jesus' resurrection power will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But until then, we journey forward hearing the voice of our Lord. Do not fear, only believe. What results from Jesus' healing ministry? We've seen that dignity is restored, life is resurrected, and both of these scenes that we've looked at 
may make you wonder, like, why doesn't Jesus just go around healing everybody? Why didn't Jesus, during his ministry, if he could raise the dead, just go around raising the dead immediately? I mean, if he has the power to do it, it seems like the logical thing to do. Well, I want to spend our last few minutes helping us wrestle through that question. And I'm going to switch microphones in order to 